Do you work for a company that allows you to use some of your paycheck to make contributions to your retirement? If you do, this is for you. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of human behavior using a behavioral science lens to help you find your groove. In today's episode, we explore with very high resolution the concept of the defined contribution plan for savings and the consequences of the opt-out enrollment. Okay, Tim, before we get too deep into this, what the heck is a defined contribution <laughs> plan? Okay, so a defined or a fixed contribution plan for savings is where the saver, who's typically an employee, uses a fixed percentage or a specific amount of money to contribute to their savings plan. And this is usually on a per paycheck basis. Now, these fixed contribution plans supplement the Social Security contributions made by the federal government. Many countries have similar plans. Right. So defined contribution is different from a pension. And the pension is referred to as a defined benefit plan uh-huh. in the way the focus of a defined contribution is on how much goes in, whereas the pension is focused on how much is coming out. And over the years, as pension plans were phased out, mostly because of the cost to the employers, defined contribution plans have become more popular. Right. So uh, when these defined contribution plans started, participation rates were relatively low, like under 50%. So in the early 2000s, Richard Thaler, a Nobel laureate and professor of economics at the University of Chicago, and Shlomo Bernardsi, an economics professor at UCLA, came up with a couple of important ways to increase the percentage of employees participating in these plans. And we should say that the most common example of a fixed contribution plan, in the United States at least, is called a 401k. Right. Thank you. Okay. So Thaler and Bernardsi's idea was to turn the tables on enrollment. Rather than presenting the employees with the choice to opt in, they made the enrollment automatic and allowed employees to opt out. Yeah, that was a little change, but that little change increased enrollment rates from 40% or so in 2000 to over 90% in 2022. That's a huge increase in the percentage of people who are contributing to their own retirement. Anyway, some recent research into this remarkable switch from opt-in to opt-out raised some cautionary flags, and we wanted to share some of those insights with you. But before we get to our guest in this episode, Kurt and I have an announcement to make. We are releasing a five-part podcast series on the history of behavioral economics called They Thought We Were Ridiculous on February 26, 2024. It's a co-production with Opinion Science Podcast, which we know that many of you are already have on your playlist, and we are super excited about it. Yeah, we've been working on this side project to our already massive side project of this podcast for, I don't know, three years with oh. Andy Guttrell, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been I mean, it has been it's been a lot of fun, a lot of learning. You got to mention uh, Richard Thaler earlier in the intro. We yeah. got to talk with him. It's 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 guaranteed to be informative and entertaining, and we hope we hope that you check it out. Yeah, even more. We hope that you share it with your friends and your family, your coworkers, your boss, your neighbors, your kids, everybody. 
you could share it with your Amazon delivery driver, your barista, you know, the person walking down the street. And you can just jump out at him and say, hey, you need to listen to this. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. not. Anyway, <laughs> then this is the important part. Just listen. Enjoy it and share it if you would. All five episodes will be dropped on February 26th. Okay. With that out of the way, we are here to talk about a conversation that we, well, actually, I had with Harvard economist John Bashirs. John has been a leading voice in economic and decision-making research for many years, and it was a treat to talk with him about a few things that he's been researching just recently. Now, the big topic we discussed was defined contribution plans. John and I talked about a paper that he co-authored with Rick Mason and David Labson on the impact of default levels, which are often established at the outset and are rarely changed. And we also talked about the impact of automatic enrollment on savings and on debt. And we also discussed the long-term effects that automatic enrollment has on retirement savings. And spoiler alert, defined contribution plans are a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But exactly how much they might help you is a mixed bag of results. It depends on your circumstances. So as we like to say here at Behavioral Grooves, context matter. <laughs> it does. So lastly, John and I got to talk about the interesting work that his father did as a photojournalist and some of the remarkable musical talent that he photographed over the years. It's cool. I have to admit, Tim, that, that that's a very cool part of your discussion. Yeah. And we should say that this is one of those rare occasions, right? When our discussion with the guest was conducted by only one of us. Now, mostly it's me. <laughs> but but in this case, uh, and I don't remember exactly what happened, but you weren't available. Yeah, I, it I came up. I had a really important meeting uh, with my daughter about her potential high school that she wants to mm. go into. We had to go and there was only a limited amount of days that we could go in and have those little fun interviews that we had. Anyway, since we had already had to bring John back to re-record because of some technical difficulties, yes, we didn't yeah. want to didn't want to do this and push him off again. So we let you handle this solo. And, and I don't know. I guess I guess our our listeners are going to have to see how <laughs> how good of a job you did. I felt bad because I was really looking forward to this conversation with John. I mean, the first one we had was great. Was. And then, but, you know, I think, I think this one might be even better. Well, we will let the listeners decide. That's that's for sure. But, but, but they won't know. They won't be able to compare. <laughs> but they'll just know if I sucked. <laughs> that's what they'll know. They will, they, will, they will know if that happened, but I don't think it did. Well, most importantly... Both John and I missed your insights and thoughts on the subjects, and uh, I want to express our gratitude to John for being such a delightful guest. He's a thoughtful guy, and we just had a really great conversation. I agree, and I hope listeners stick around for the grooving session where you and I will discuss all of this in more detail. But for now, we want to invite you to sit back and relax with a warm pour of defined contribution and heat up your savings goals with Tim's conversation with John Bashirs. John Bashirs, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. 
Thanks so much, Tim. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Well, we are glad to have you here today. And uh, even without Kurt, it's always great to talk to you. And we got to start with the speed round. So we need to know first and foremost, coffee or tea? Coffee, absolutely. I've uh, been informed by my doctor that I should switch to decaf. So I have mostly made that uh, oh. made that transition. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm kind of sorry to hear that. Were you relying on the caffeine? Was was that part of your your love of coffee? Uh, it it did certainly help keep me awake, but um, I've been I've been <laughs> okay. on decaf for a, a, a few months now, and I've, I've my body has made the adjustment. So whatever caffeine addiction I had, I, I guess I've largely overcome. Uh, but because I drank the caffeinated sort for so long, uh, I really do like the taste now. And, and that habit, I think, will will sustain. I I have never gotten used to the taste. I don't like I, I don't like coffee at all. I, I like the taste just oh, it's just it just doesn't make any sense to me. Okay. Well, <laughs> but, I'm, I'm sorry that you're missing out. There, there are health benefits, <laughs> too, I believe, of coffee. I think you even get some of them with decaf, but don't. Oh, me. I'm not. I'm not a medical researcher. Okay. Well, congratulations on your new decaf life, <laughs> I suppose. Okay. Second speed round question, bicycle or unicycle? I might try to go with neither. Maybe that's not uh, an allowed option, but uh, <laughs> I, I, okay, we'll say, we'll say bicycle, but with either of them, I'm concerned for my safety. I'm not the greatest uh, at sort of navigating on, on a bicycle and uh, especially in traffic. So oh, yeah. if, if neither is acceptable, I will, I will go with that answer. Well, and you live in Boston. I can't imagine the the streets of Boston being really super easy for bicyclists. That's right. Yeah, no, especially <laughs> during the winter months. Although I do have colleagues who are absolutely committed to cycling to to work. Not every day, and certainly not through snowstorms and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah. they're admirable in their in their commitment to getting there over uh, over to the office on a bike, even when it is rigidly cold out. You know, uh, George Lowenstein is a big biker, big bicycle yeah. guy. And he, wherever he goes, whenever he's on sabbatical, he takes a bike with him and it's, um, he's going to, going to figure out how to navigate the traffic, but he's also like expert right? You know, at doing it. Yes. And yeah, I, I, I would be in your camp. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not there. Okay. So true or false participation in corporate fixed contribution retirement plans have more than doubled in the last 20 years. True or false? You know, I, I'm not entirely sure of that answer, which makes me feel bad since this is my area of research. But I'll, <laughs> I'll guess true. We think that that is true. Okay. Yeah, I think Shlomo Bernardsi would would support a okay. true one. Great, that. great. Okay, last speed round question: Is automatic 401k enrollment universally a good idea? Ah, so now we're getting into <laughs> um, yes, really the the heart of my my research area. I'm going to say, first of all, that universally is a very strong statement, but by yeah. and large, I think automatic enrollment in retirement savings plans like 401ks is a good idea. And, you know, I, I can, I can start to get into why. Uh, yeah, so, I think, I think we should, I, let's talk about why it's a good idea first. Yeah. And then, and then let's talk about some of the exceptions that were revealed in your research. Why, why is a automatic 401k enrollment a good idea? So under automatic enrollment, what happens is the employer changes the default participation status from non-participation to participation. It, and it says to the employees, we have this wonderful 401k plan set up for you. If you don't tell us otherwise, we are enrolling you in it. You are going to be 
contributing X percent of your pay every pay cycle. Let's say that's 3% of your pay every pay cycle. And it's going to be invested in this default. So that's the sort of switch that we're contemplating when we say, is automatic enrollment a good idea? We're switching from the opt-in system to this automatic enrollment system. And I promise I'll get to, is this a good idea and why? But <laughs> let me just describe from my research and the research of many others, what this switch mm-hmm. does in terms of people's participation in these retirement savings plans. The one, one major effect, I think, as, as most people would predict, is it increases enrollment. And the magnitude yeah. of that is, is quite, quite large. If you have a, a typical, you know, I've looked at a lot of companies that have made this switch. A typical company might have half of its employees participating in the 401k plan one year after they joined the company under this opt-in system. Automatic yeah, under the, the sort of the old, the old, old model. System, yeah, under the old system. Yeah. Automatic enrollment might increase that by 40, 45 percentage points. So to 90% or, or 95%. Um, as a participation yeah. rate at uh, at one year of tenure. That's and, a significant difference, right? So there. It's, a, it's a huge difference. And I mean, it, this this sort of the magnitude of the effect varies across companies that I've looked at and that others mm-hmm. have looked at. I've seen effect sizes as small as 25 percentage points. I've seen even bigger than the 40 to 45 mm. that I that I just mentioned. But you know, either way, sort of anything within that range, I would call I would call a large, a large. Yeah. Um, and that puts, you know, that's putting putting more money towards the future, towards people's uh, savings. Um, and of course, meaning that people are having a little bit less take-home pay and a little bit less to spend in the, in, in the immediate moment. So the reason why I can say that it's a good idea quite confidently in a lot of situations is that employers often offer what's called employer matching contributions on employee contributions. And the way that works is uh, the employer will say to employees, for every dollar you put into your 401k account up to some limit, let's say up to 6% of your pay, we, the employer, will put in some of our own money, that's extra money from the employer's bank account into your 401k account right alongside your contributions. And maybe in some Mm -hmm. situations, that's a dollar for dollar match, meaning you're getting an instantaneous 100% return on the dollars that you, the employee, are contributing to your 401k plan. And that type of, I mean, whenever you see that sort of opportunity, there's a very, very high chance that you should be taking it. Um, And so because that is such a good deal, such a good idea for employees, I feel confident in those situations that that automatic enrollment is is a good idea for them. Um, And so automatic enrollment is, is getting people to earn those matching dollars uh, and, and, you know, reap, reap that benefit. Yeah, you really, it's hard to imagine a world where you can get a 50% or 100% return instantaneously. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, in any other investment scenario. So it seems like it, it, it's pretty good. But there are situations, and, and I should just say before we get to more situations, your research has been focused on these fixed contribution plans in the United States, right? That we're, we're pretty much talking about people who are working uh, for organizations in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, so a lot of my research has been in based in the United States. I've, I've also studied data from the United Kingdom, but these types of uh, defined contribution plans are 
seen in a lot of different places around the world. And in fact, automatic enrollment is increasingly used in, in a lot of those places around the world. So I already mentioned, in addition to the United States, the United Kingdom, um, but yeah. Australia has um, a very extensive system of these sorts of retirement accounts. New Zealand has these sorts of accounts and automatic enrollment enshrined as as, a, as, as an officially good idea. Uh, Turkey has recently implemented automatic enrollment. So it's not just not just a U.S. phenomenon, even though, yeah, a lot of the data that I've studied are, are from the United States. Interesting. So it is fascinating that the default, by changing the default and, and going to this opt-out kind of style, has had such a huge impact. And in general, right, it's, is it fair to summarize to say that for most people, this is a good idea? Yes. Because we're getting more people into a savings plan that they otherwise might not have gotten into. Exactly. And, you know, sort of beyond earning matching dollars, a lot of people benefit from saving more for retirement than than they otherwise would. And so that's, um, of course, an, another thing that we want to take into account when we're, we're analyzing the wisdom of this sort of policy. So you, uh, I mean, the the work on on 401k is, you know, we go back to Save More Tomorrow, Richard Thaler and Shlomo Bernardzi's mm-hmm. early work. There's been a lot of scholarship around this. What got you interested in in wanting to learn more about this? We'll, we'll talk about your results and, sure. and, and in, in just a second. But I'm kind of curious about what got you interested in this? Yeah, well, so... Um... It was really all the way back when I was in college, uh, I first encountered, well, I first encountered economics, <laughs> full stop. Um, and okay, shortly thereafter, okay. I, I encountered <laughs> behavioral economics, which, you know, I, you already mentioned uh, Richard Thaler and Shlomo Benarzi, but but others, Robert Schiller. Um, and certainly, you know, sort of there's a, a, a generation of behavioral economists who really got the field going. But I like to think that when I was in college, it was the early 2000s. It was still, it was still a growth industry. It was still kind of at its uh, at its beginnings. Yeah. But what I learned about, gosh, you know, once we start incorporating insights from psychology into economics, we both, at least to my perspective, uh, incorporate a lot more of a realistic perspective into how people make decisions. Uh, but then we get all of these interesting implications when it comes to how we might design policy. That that really got me interested in uh, becoming a behavioral economist myself. And actually, I I started working during college as a research assistant for David Lapson, one of the the world's great behavioral economists. And that's when I learned that oh well, not only what is this behavioral economics thing, but one powerful application of these ideas is to personal financial decision making. Um, and from that work initially as a research assistant, now now David and I are, are longtime collaborators and, and co-authors. That's why I learned that not only is this an interesting set of ideas uh, from a theoretical perspective, but we can apply them to this very practical set of problems that we see in the world when it comes to helping people make better financial decisions. Yeah, there really is this wonderful practical application about all of it uh, that just makes it so, uh, so meaningful and so relevant uh, in in the world. I think that that's, that's really cool. Okay. So let's, let's talk about your, your, the current field of work that, uh, that you're doing is helping us understand more of the nuance of, of what's working about automatic enrollment and what's not. Right. What what did you go into this this last research round with 
I don't know, I don't want to say hypothesis, but but sort of what were the ideas that that generated this recent analysis? Yeah, yeah, sure. So really, I'll say that there was an, an earlier set of results that my collaborators, including David Labson and James Choi and Bridget Madrid and I had been uh, had been finding and and others, you know, sort of that was our team, but many others had been working in this space. Again, you mentioned Richard Thaler and Shlomo Benarzi. They're real leaders here. But the earlier research conducted by me and and, and my collaborators and, and others was very much focused on what do these changes to the structure of 401k plans imply for decisions within the 401k plan. Uh, so I already mentioned participation. Are you enrolled or not? Mm-hmm. We saw big effects of automatic enrollment, um, but there are a lot of other dimensions of that. So what contribution rates are people choosing? Yeah. In, the, in that early set of research findings, we were generally seeing that one third to two thirds, I mean, it varied from company to company, when you implemented automatic enrollment, one third to two thirds of employees, again, at approximately one year of, of tenure, one year after hire, were sticking with the default contribution rate, whether it was 2% or 3%. Right. In some cases, it was, was 6%. Now, that meant that some people, and when you kind of analyze the data further, you would see that some people were being pulled up from 0% to the uh, the 3% or 2% or 6%, whatever the default is, that's really the kind of synonymous with the participation effect I was saying earlier. People were being pulled up from non-participation, a 0% contribution rate to whatever the default is. But there were also some people who were being pulled down. Maybe in the absence of automatic enrollment, they would have contributed 10%, and instead they're contributing at the 6% default contribution rate. Right. So that's that's quite interesting. Um, Now, on net, so automatic enrollment relative to opt-in enrollment is increasing contribution rates for one group of people, decreasing for another group of people. On net, when you average all that together, you tend to find that the effect on average contributions, where the average is taken across the entire employee population is positive. Right. And maybe- Yeah, so, so, so that's a good thing. That's a good thing, as you say. In net, overall, we we consider that a win. Yes, yeah. And so that's, you know, the type of, the, the type of, research that was part of this earlier stream of, of work conducted by, by myself and others. And so uh, more recently, what my collaborators and I have been trying to get a handle on is how does automatic enrollment in your employer's 401k plan influence behavior and outcomes outside of the 401k plan? One way of putting yeah. that is, well, we see, at least on average, an increase in contributions to the plan when we move from an opt-in system to an automatic enrollment system. But but those contributions have to come from somewhere. Uh, They could come from a a reduction in your current spending. You reduce your your current consumption. It could come from maybe instead of saving outside of your 401k plan, instead instead of saving in a brokerage account, you're saving in your 401k plan. It could also come from an increase in debt, right? So if I'm if I'm contributing an extra, call it $100 right now, uh, maybe I don't change my spending, I don't shift savings anywhere else, and I just take on an extra $100 of credit card debt. Now, then all of a sudden, we start to become more concerned that automatic enrollment is not a good idea, right? Right, of course, right. If you're getting a 100% match, maybe that outweighs the interest rate that you're paying on the credit card, but the additional $100 in credit card debt that you that you just incurred. 
But but you know, all of a sudden we become a lot less confident that automatic enrollment is is benefiting people. So we went out to to investigate precisely this: what is the impact of automatic enrollment on the debt side of employees' balance sheets? Um, and so I actually have, we have two different papers: one already published and one in in the works that I that I can tell you about. In the first one, the one that's already published, we were really focused on. Um, does automatic enrollment seem to lead to financial distress as measured in people's credit reports from uh, you know, one of the big three credit bureaus in, in the United States, where financial distress, we're kind of thinking of debt-related measures. Are you delinquent on debt? Are you making late, late in making payments? Are you defaulting on your debt? Are you uh, in delinquency on your on your mortgage? All those sorts of things. So what we did was we actually were able to partner with the the U.S. Army, uh, because they instituted automatic enrollment for newly hired civilian employees, everyone who was hired from a particular date onwards. And what that does is it creates a natural uh, sort of treatment control contrast, if you will. We can yeah. compare people who were hired just after the institution of this new policy to people hired just before, and we can do some things to reassure ourselves that those two groups of people are similar, but then we track them over time. So one group was automatically enrolled. There's we verify in line with the prior work. They're they're saving more in their in their retirement savings plan. It's not a four hundred one k. It's called the thrift savings plan for federal uh, employees. But same thing for our program. still you're right. Still the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and then we see what's happening with the folks who were not automatically enrolled. They're saving less, but. Completely anonymously, let me reassure you, we were able to link those savings records to what's happening in their credit reports. Um, and so we can see, yes, the people who are automatically enrolled are saving more, but um, thankfully, and here's the good news and the result, we don't see indications of an increase in financial distress among the folks who were, who were saving more, who were automatically enrolled. They're, yeah, that's good news. Yeah, no, that's good. So their credit stars <laughs> aren't moving. Uh, we don't we don't see an increase in, in in delinquencies, et cetera. We measured a lot of different variables that are available from from credit bureaus. So there, we're looking actually at data from the United Kingdom, which rolled out at a at a nationwide level, automatic enrollment in, in employer-based retirement savings plans. And they're not 401ks because 401k is named after a, a provision of the U.S. tax code. Uh, but again, you can think of them as exactly like uh, like 401ks for our purposes. And so not um, there, there's a special subset of employers. It's the smaller employers, those with between 2 and 29 employees, where uh, over the course of a couple of years, we can treat the date at which the government of the United Kingdom required those employers to automatically enroll employees as, as effectively random. Okay, so all employers, okay. Um, it was rolled out steadily but staged over time, were eventually required to automatically enroll their employees in these retirement savings plans. Among the small employers, so, so in that way, oh, yeah. kind of in that way, sort of similar to the army setup, where you had a sort of a pre and post uh, implementation timeframe. Yes. Yeah. So we're exactly trying to create that sort of um, early group and, and later yeah. group. Um, it's going to end up being slightly yeah. different because now instead of comparing employees of the same company where some were automatically enrolled and some were not, what we're, we're going to be able to do is we have all these employees of the small employers. Some of their employers were 
effectively randomly chosen to have to implement automatic enrollment early, and others were effectively randomly chosen to have to implement automatic enrollment late. And we can Ah. compare the employees of the early adopters to employees of the late adopters at the same point in time. Um, And so here are people who were just automatically enrolled. Here are otherwise very, very similar people who will eventually be automatically enrolled, but have not been automatically enrolled yet. What do their outcomes look like? And we can see, again, consistent with everything we've we've seen in the past, that savings in the retirement plans increases as a consequence of automatic enrollment yeah. when you do that comparison. Um, but here we also linked to credit reports for, for the individuals. And again, we were able to do this such that we, the researchers, never knew anyone's identities. It was all... Uh, it's just participant one, participant exactly. two, participant yeah. three. Yeah. But here we have a lot more data. I mean, we had a lot of data for, from the U.S. Army because the U.S. Army hires, hires a lot of civilian employees. But here we have even more data. And so we have even more precision that allows us to study a more extensive set of variables with statistical precision. Um, and so we can look at not just, oh, were you, were you delinquent on your debt? But we can focus on outcomes like, well, how much additional debt are you taking on as a consequence of automatic enrollment? Um, honest, we actually looked at those variables in the in the prior paper, but uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, we don't have a lot of statistical precision to say one way or the other exactly what's going on there. I mean, for what it's worth, we didn't see debt increasing as a consequence of automatic enrollment in the early right. paper, but um, right. again, not not a lot of statistical precision there. But it, but with this new analysis using UK data, we have more stati- statistical precision, and what we can say is that it looks like. Employees who were automatically enrolled, as a consequence of that, they save an additional 28 pounds per month, but they're also accumulating certain forms of debt at a greater rate. Um, And so this is things like overdrafts on your bank account or um, those Uh. those sort of um, unsecured types types of credit. Those are increasing by seven or eight pounds per month. And so all of a sudden, you know, if you I'm going to give you a rough sense of how much of the impact of automatic enrollment on savings is being offset by an increase in debt. Because if what we care about is, well, what's your increase in net wealth, you want to uh, take the increase in savings and kind of subtract off the increase in debt. Because at the end of the day, you need to pay off. And maybe that 28 pound per month increase in savings, you take seven or eight pounds of that and use that to pay off the additional seven or eight pounds of, of debt that you that you took on. So roughly a quarter of the monthly savings was diluted. Yeah, that's in, right. In these extra fees that it, it sounds like a pretty significant penalty to pay. Yeah, well, so it's it's not just the it's not just extra fees. I mean, you will be paying interest on your on your extra debt, but you, it's it's debt that you incurred. <laughs> and so yeah, you it's it, right. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, it's just additional debt, yeah. and that and that's that's not optimal. Right. Well, so all of a sudden it becomes just a lot harder to judge. What is this? You know, really good or bad? Really in the best interests of people. Now, yeah. I'll, I'll say there's there's a little wrinkle here. So the twenty eight pounds extra savings per month that's just at the employer where we've assigned you as as, as being the employee because. That's where you were when the employer was undergoing automatic enrollment. You could also leave that company and then you're saving at a different place and we lose track of you essentially when we're 
saying that 28 pound per month number. But yeah, think of it as roughly, okay, maybe it's a 25%, perhaps slightly lower, perhaps, you know, something in the, in that range. And there's a statistical error bounds around that, but, but something in that range, which seems to be, which seems to be the offset effect. Now, there's still good news in, in this story, however, which is that if anything, automatic enrollment is causing people's credit scores to improve. It's a very, very small improvement, but if anything, it goes in that direction. And um, if anything, it's actually making people a little bit better. It seems that they're, they're better at repaying their debt. So they're even a little bit less likely to be delinquent. And we don't see any effect on bankruptcy. Interesting. So yeah, we see this creeping up in debt. And that's an important offset effect we really want to think about carefully. But the story seems to be a little bit more complex because um, we see absolutely no indication that this additional debt is driving people to financial distress. And if anything, they seem a little bit better able to handle their their finances. So, and you know, unfortunately, I, I wish I had a, a really clean way of resolving <laughs> this, uh, this little puzzle, um, but uh, I don't. The, the, those are the results. And so we'll just have to live with this tension until we yeah. do additional research. Like, oh yes, debt is creeping up as a consequence of automatic enrollment. People's measures of financial distress, if anything, suggests that there's an improvement in their financial situation. So where that leaves us, I'm not completely sure, but I can say that all of a sudden, well, yeah, we, we, you know, we need to be perhaps a little bit more uh, thoughtful about how we're evaluating the wisdom of automatic enrollment as a policy. Yeah. I, I love the way that you just ended that. This what appears to be or what appeared to be when when automatic enrollment came on the scene, it seemed like it was some kind of a magic bullet. Right. Uh, yeah. And th- there's plenty of great stories to tell from it. And there's great evidence that it's it's got a, a positive effect on lots and lots of people. Yeah. However, and correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but it sounds like there might be some nuances that we're not fully understanding. Right. Yeah, that need deeper and further investigation. That's, that's exactly right. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. Another yeah. research project that my collaborators and I are working on is finding that once you take a little bit of a longer run perspective, so a, lo- a lot, not all, but some of the earlier research on automatic enrollment would, would focus on shorter run type of outcomes. I, I, for example, was quoting what happens a year after people are hired. Right. And when you focus right. on that time horizon, uh, the impact of automatic enrollment looks really, really big. In this new project, what we're doing is we're looking out to five years. So that's not so far in the future, but a little bit longer oh. than at least my focus was initially. Um, and yeah. What we're finding is that the effects are, when, when you take that longer look, are, are not as as magnificently large as we might have thought naively if we had just extrapolated from what happens at, at one year. And and. Mm-hmm. What we're finding is that there are two forces responsible for this. One, which we we had some inkling about already, which is that as you go from a horizon of one year to five years after people are hired, the folks who are not automatically enrolled, who are in your control group, if you will, they kind of catch up to the people in the automatic enrollment group, right? So when I said uh, automatic enrollment increased participation rates, by 40, 45 percentage points at one year of tenure. Uh, by the time you get to five years of tenure, that's that's much smaller. And then, you know, if the effect, and I'll just choose a round number, let's say it's approximately 1% of pay, that's the average effect of, of automatic enrollment on, on contribution rates. 
that's at one year, 10 year, the number is going to be, be somewhat smaller uh, at, at five years and oh. 10 year because the folks who were not automatically enrolled, it's not that they never get into the savings plan. They just take a little bit longer um, and eventually they start contributing and they, and they start to have their contribution rates catch up to the folks who were, who were automatically enrolled. Um, so that's, that's one force that is making the longer run effects smaller than you might get if you naively extrapolated the one-year effect. Uh, but the other force I, I think is really important and hasn't received um, enough attention, uh, what's, what's known as leakage, meaning a certain amount of money that is put into retirement plans um, actually is withdrawn before people reach retirement age. Uh, even there's one paper which found that for every dollar going into retirement plans, defined contribution retirement plans in the U.S., there's about 50 cents coming out in the opposite direction uh, oh. in that same year before in, in the form of pre-retirement withdrawals. Um, and once you start taking that into account, like, oh, yes, automatic enrollment gets people to contribute uh, a good amount of money to the plan. Yeah. But a big part of that is undone when people take these pre-retirement withdrawals. Um, and that's particularly likely uh, for reasons of the way these, these plan rules are set up when people leave their employer. Now, of course, in the United States, people kind of uh, change employers pretty, pretty frequently. So um, yeah. if at the time you leave your employer, you're withdrawing either a good chunk or even all of your, of your retirement savings balance, anything that automatic enrollment did for your retirement savings is, is kind of being undone. Uh, yeah. At the very least, it's not being kept for its stated purpose, which is retirement savings. Maybe right. that money is is very useful. So this is not a judgment that people are making a mistake when they take that pre-retirement withdrawal. Um, they could be using that for very good reasons. Maybe they just you know, have some sort of financial emergency that they, uh, they can yeah. cover, and, and this is a good way, good way of doing it. Well, and I, I expect there's a fair amount of friction to get to that that money. That it's it's not like just taking your ATM card and yeah. going and grabbing out of your four hundred one k. So, it, it, is that fair? This is, this is a really <laughs> an interesting point because one friction that is is lifted is oftentimes when you're an employee of a company and you're saving in their four hundred one k plan. It's hard. There, there's certain obstacles to accessing the money that's saved in your plan. You can take a loan, oftentimes, um, then you're repaying yourself, essentially. In hardship situations, and those are sort of clearly defined situations, you need to document that you're in one of those situations. You can also access your money. But otherwise, um, just kind of taking a straight out withdrawal can be difficult while you're still employed. But all of that gets lifted when you are no longer employed by the company. Uh, the loan option is no longer available to you when you're no longer employed, but you can just withdraw your money whenever you want. You still yeah. have to pay yeah. taxes on that. And in particular, unless you meet some, uh, some criteria, you're gonna have to pay a 10% tax penalty on top of any income taxes that you owe on your withdrawal. Yeah. So that friction is still in place, but a lot of people, uh, it seems the data, feel that it's worthwhile to incur those costs wow. in order to, to access their money. Um, wow. There, there's one other wrinkle that is uh, important to note. If your retirement savings balance is sufficiently small when you separate from your, from your employer, in particular if it's below $1,000, the employer can and often does 
just send that money to you as a check. And oh. that's sort of the, the, the default disposition of your money if, you're, if your balance is, is balance is small. So in that case, it's, uh, it's very easy to, uh, to get access to the money that's in your retirement plan. And you still pay the taxes and the tax penalty on it in a lot of situations. But wow. so it, sort of the institutional rules have all these intricacies, which sort of uh, either partly lift or completely lift depending on your exact situation when you when you leave your employer. It sounds like there's more avenues to to research here. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, so we're we're, we're still <laughs> we're still working on this. But, you know, all in together sort of the these two forces I was pointing to, the the people who are not automatically enrolled catching up to the people who were automatically enrolled and yeah. this leakage, the pre-retirement withdrawals, which could be for a very good reason, of uh, those forces diminish the long run effect of automatic enrollment on yeah. savings accumulation relative to what we would have extrapolated based on just the the one year effect of automatic enrollment. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, I'm grateful that you're doing this, oh, that, that you and your, your co-authors yeah. are, are no, in, continuing in, in, this. I, I, I find this fascinating and I just uh, love, love looking into these. <laughs> and I guess it's been a couple of decades now that I have been <laughs> working on these. So uh, yeah, this 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 has kind of become a central part of your work. Yeah, it um, really has. You you did some cool work with Katie Milkman on um, fresh start approaches, sort of alternative, you know, yeah. ways to rethink about auto enrollment. Uh, can you can you share with our, our listeners a little bit about about that sure, uh, or yeah. sort of other variations? Of yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'll I'll run with the fresh start suggestion that you just mentioned. So, in addition to automatic enrollment, exactly as you're saying my collaborators and I are interested in identifying, you know, sort of all sorts of behavioral science inspired techniques for helping people save more. And Katie Milkman, along with her authors, have put forward this, I think, very powerful idea of fresh starts, the concept that there are certain moments in time. In fact, you know, easy ones to think of are New Year's, but you can also think of your birthday or sometimes it's the beginning of a new semester if you're a student. Um, yeah. But there are these particular moments in time which feel like moments when you can break with your past uh, unproductive habits and engage in a new <laughs> version of yourself. And uh, what if you don't have any unproductive habits? <laughs> uh, then, oh. then I, I guess that I, wouldn't I be wish me. I were like you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. No. So, but, no. Um, uh. We we wanted to harness this idea in the retirement savings context where. Yeah. We think of saving for retirement as a productive habit. It's a, a far-sighted behavior where you're taking some sacrifice now. You, you spend a little bit less now. You enjoy a little bit less consumption right now in exchange for a long-run benefit, namely more consumption in the future. And uh, we wanted to deploy this in uh, hopefully a scalable way to see whether this would help people, uh, employees actually of, of five different universities save more in their university-based retirement savings plans. So what we did was we we deployed letters. We sent out letters to employees who were not saving in their plans. And mm-hmm. we gave them a very easy opportunity to change that, to start contributing to their plans. And we, we in particular gave them two options for how to do that. They could just ignore the letter and not return it, of course. And, you know, most most people did. So about 90% of people uh, were, were in that category. Okay. Uh, but, but if you're going to respond, you have two different options for how to start contributing. You can start contributing now 
or building on the uh, same more tomorrow idea of Taylor and Benazzi, you can start saving two months in the future or three months in the future, four, five, six weeks. Sort of that varied across um, across individuals. So there, but there were two options. Just for the sake of concreteness, let's say you can start saving now, or you can start saving four months from now. Okay. Um, now. For some people, that's exactly the way we framed the options. It's now or four months from now. For other people, randomly assigned, we, we framed it as now versus a point in time in the future, which we believe is a fresh start. And so actually okay. we can, for some people, that was their birthday. It's now or after your next birthday or now or after the first day of spring turns out to be a, a powerful fresh start moment in uh, in this study. And what we figure. found was that when you switch the framing to really emphasize that that future moment is a fresh start opportunity, people are more responsive. They're more likely to choose that option um, and therefore more likely to, uh, to start saving. Um, now, of course, that's the later option. And so we see an increase in take up of the save in the future option. Uh, is that coming from a decrease in the save now option actually no not really it didn't seem like people were less likely to mm. save now so we sort of see overall a, an increase in people choosing either of the options and therefore overall an increase in people who are who are saving for retirement so simply framing the opportunity around a fresh start date of first day of spring yeah, for instance exactly was enough to cue and engage more people exactly. in, in actually doing the behavior. Right. <laughs> we're, we're proud of that one, yeah. <laughs> you should be. I, I think it's just, uh, first of all, I, I love the human condition that we respond to these things. Right. You know, right. um, I don't love the fact that we're we're not very good about making short-term sacrifices for long-term gains. Yeah. Not wild about that, but that's who we are. That is as, who we are. <laughs> as, as, that's who we are. But I love that that we respond so positively to something as so simple as first day of spring. Why not start saving then? Right, right, <laughs> and right. uh, I, I think that's fantastic. I'm grateful that you're doing this work, John, and um, it, you and your collaborators continue to, to investigate this, to suss out the, these nuances. But before we close, I'm curious about, you know, you and I have, have had many conversations and you sit in your office and I see these fantastic photographs behind you. You've got uh, these, uh, you know, some musicians yes, yes. Uh, on, on the wall. And uh, we always like to talk a little bit about music on Behavioral Groove. So, right, yeah, of course. so how is it that you come to having these fantastic black and white um, photos on your wall? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm very proud of these because these photographs, and I, I can actually uh, move to the side here so you can see uh, who who these folks are. The one furthest to my left, that's a photograph of of Mose Allison, uh, the kind of jazz blues singer pianist. These two middle ones here, point at this one because you best best see him. This one is Philip Glass, the kind of composer, uh, I guess, yeah. kind of in the classical tradition, but really doing his own thing. And then um, here, kind of furthest on my right is Lightning Hopkins, the more kind of, I guess, blues, uh, blues guitarist. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I put him in Delta Blues, okay, yeah, absolutely. Point, yeah, so yeah. So these photographs, which I, I you, know, you see, uh, some of them in action, in particular, Mose Allison uh, right there at the piano and seems to be singing. These photographs- A concert, yeah, it, it's a concert shot, yeah. yeah. yeah were, 
were taken by my father. So his, uh, his first career was as a professional photographer and his favorite subject was, was musicians. So for one of my birthdays, I forget exactly which one, he uh, went into his archives, dug these up and, and printed them out for me and framed them. So I, I very proudly had wow. these in my office. Yeah. They, that's so cool. I, I love all the connectivity on that. Yeah. The fact that it was your dad that took the pictures that he, you know, that he loved these, these kinds of uh, subjects and uh, all, all that stuff. Are you a fan of Mose Allison or I am, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Philip Glass? I mean, do you like those, uh, those musicians? So uh, out of the ones I just mentioned, I'd say um, I'm the biggest fan of Mose Allison. Uh, jazz is, is sort of yeah. Uh, even if he's not sort of strictly, strictly within jazz, I, I think he's I think he counts. Uh, that, that's really one of one of my favorite musical forms, and uh, something that I uh, listen to regularly, both sort of actively. But I don't know. I want to I want to put on some Bill Evans, and and in the passive way, where while I'm working here at my desk, I turn on the uh, the jazz radio station. Actually, the uh, jazz radio station from uh, from the Bay Area where where I grew up, and that's sort of a pretty steady stream going on in, in my life as I'm doing whatever it is, uh, writing paper or looking at statistical regression results or, or preparing a team. <laughs> you, wow. Wow. Did you get to Yoshi's? Were you a, were you a, a, a fan of live shows? You know as what? Well? I, I'll admit, I, so I have been to a few jazz shows, both in the Bay Area. I grew up in San Francisco and in Boston, but I don't consume it much in the live format uh mostly That's okay yeah mostly on yeah. the radio or uh you know streaming streaming from uh whatever you know spotify or, or that sort of thing so yeah i, I maybe, maybe i should uh, maybe i should get out more <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's for a different discussion, <laughs> but it's 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 good. So you do you do listen to music while you're working, yeah, while you're pretty coding, frequently, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you or is it, uh, is it not while I'm writing? Okay, interesting. It, it's uh, music is just too distracting for okay. me. Okay, yeah. Well, it, you 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 probably have a, a deeper appreciation for it, like on a whole different level from me. <laughs> well, I I don't know if it's appreciation, but because I think. You know, uh, I think everybody appreciates music in, in in whatever way that they want to, and that's that's good enough. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm 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 not here to judge anybody's, but but it is it is a huge distraction for me. I can't. It, I am not able to to just have music going on in the background and not be listening to mm. it. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, well, so that's I, I do feel so while while I'm working, there are certain parts of the music that will break through my focus and I'll focus on the music for a little while. But I, I feel that's kind of, that's kind of standard. It's, it's hard to have completely sustained concentration and focus for, you know, much more than a couple of minutes for me anyway, even if there's no music going on. So that, that, that feels yeah. fun. Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, it, just in the world of jazz, there was uh, a, a recently released uh, Charlie Parker. I think it was, he was playing in, well, I, I don't know, I don't remember where, but with Dizzy Gillespie and and sort of the founders uh, yeah. of uh, bebop, and Parker had recently hocked his his saxophone, and they gave him a plastic, a, literally a plastic saxophone to play <laughs> really? at, at this show because it was just on hand. It was just, just sort of available. It wasn't a toy, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but it was it was actually made of of consumer grade plastic. Oh my god, and 
What, and did it sound okay? Or? It sounds fantastic. Wow, wow. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. You know, uh, because it was fun. Charlie Parker, yeah. you know, uh, at, at, you know, behind the mouthpiece because he was just yeah. such a virtuoso Amazing. that he made the instrument just fly. Um, wow. Yeah. I get my hands and, on and, that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll have it in the show notes. That's for sure. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. as a, as a jazz guy, I think you might enjoy, uh, enjoy that. And there's some great stories that are going around about how, <laughs> how, you know, how he comes to hawk his, right. his uh, saxophone or, or how Dizzy Gillespie was spending half the time drinking between songs and was pretty <laughs> hammered in the set. You go, these guys are amazing. Yeah, anyway, really. John, it is always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure to chat with you. And thank you so much for sharing um, your, your research with us here on Behavioral Grooves. No, that, that, thanks for a great conversation, Tim. And, and thanks so much for having me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learn from Tim's discussion with John, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our savings-oriented brains. Yeah, it's kind of good to have a, a, a story that's really positive, isn't it? I mean, that behavioral science reveals that there's a lot of really good things that happen with this behavioral science intervention. I, I like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I was thinking you were going to go that that I don't have a savings brain and that I have a spending brain <laughs> and it gets me in trouble. And you were going to say, Kurt, you don't have a savings brain. What's going on? I didn't say that, though. You didn't. And you know the reason you didn't say it is because we have a defined contribution plan that I'm automatically enrolled in here at the Lantern Group. And so yeah, therefore, maybe. I don't have to be have a savings brain because it's already done for me. <laughs> so that behavioral science coming to your rescue. There it is. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Although I did have to set up the entire contribution, you know, the, the defined because contribution. You for are the, the founder. My employees since I, I run the damn thing, but you know, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> okay. So with some nuance. I guess that's with some nuance. There yeah. we go. There we go. Oh, okay. So, all right. I'm I, since I was not part of this conversation, although it it mirrored a lot of what we talked about in our first time. So, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I do have some insight um, beyond just listening to you having a great conversation with John. But, but you know, what did you take away? What What's the big takeaway for you from the conversation that you had? Well, let's start with uh, the ease of enrollment that reducing friction makes it makes uh, participating in your defined contribution plan uh, more successful. More people are enrolled today because of the opt out function rather than the opt in. Uh, and, it, we, and we've known that. Uh, we've but, known that for a long time. I think that's really important. There's been lots of research on that. And I think one of the interesting pieces of this, if I remember right, and please correct me if, if you know I'm wrong or somebody listener, correct me afterwards but part of the big deal that like uh that Richard and Shlomo did back in the day was that they had to get some laws changed in order to make it an opt out versus yeah. an opt in yep. right yeah that that you know, think about that that's crazy when we think about what the result has been and how positive that has been over the course of the past 20 plus years. Yeah, uh, well said. I, I think that it, it is amazing and that we should celebrate this idea that automatic enrollment has helped 
literally millions of people uh, in the United States. And uh, as John Bashir's talked about in uh, Turkey and the UK, you know, this is this is sort of the the new gold standard for how to get people engaged in something that is financially so important to them. Well, and it's financially really beneficial, particularly when there is a matching contribution from the employer. Yeah. yeah. It's free freaking money, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the way I, I'm paying out to my people, you know, the, my employees. Yes, yes, right? I pay this extra money every, every paycheck because they're part of this uh, 401k. And, and and if you are an employee, you know, part of this is making sure that you are not just uh, enrolled in this, but that you're maximizing your possibility. And so right. um, I think that's really important. And to think that many employers uh, match uh, dollar for dollar and uh, there, there are still plenty that match like 50 cents on the dollar, but to get a 50 cent or a 50% return on your money instantly- Woo-hoo! Yeah, yeah. It, that's fantastic. Put a dollar in, you give me 50 cents. Okay, uh, give me a dollar 50 back. Yeah, right? a dollar 50 back. <laughs> I just, exactly. you don't, yeah. You, yeah, that would be bad if it was the other way around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, the second thing I wanted to kind of clarify is that auto-enrollment, you know, the, uh, John brought up this question, does auto-enrollment lead to financial distress uh, or poor credit scores? And there are some cases where people do uh, suffer. And those are mostly cases where they're already having some difficulties, some challenges making ends meet that the, right. the paycheck is just barely enough. So uh, in those cases, auto enrollment is really not uh, a, a great deal. For, well, for it, those it, folks. It, it can be a great deal because it forces people to be thinking about that. But for some, as was mentioned, right, is that in those cases where there is so much fi- financial distress that that can lead them to missing payments on others because that money is being taken out right. of their paycheck and put into this um, long-term investment for them and they don't have it for immediate needs, thus creating some more additional financial hardships and right. various things. And I think for the important piece, and again, um, correct me if I'm wrong here from your your thoughts on this, is that as an individual, we know that the opt-out component makes it, there's, there's less friction, but they still have the opt-out, right? They can, they can choose not to do this and they can choose that at any point. So they could be automatically enrolled, but then later they could definitely opt out. Once you're opted in doesn't mean that you are stuck in this forever. Well, as Thaler would say, it is libertarian paternalism. So, so the paternalism is we're putting something in front of you that we think is in your best interest. And the libertarian side of it is that, and you can opt out. You don't, you don't have to participate. So here's, here's what we think is your best option and you don't have to choose it. That I think, I think that's kind of the core part, but there is something that, you know, people who don't opt in, they can be okay too. Um, Yeah. You talked with John about this. Don't. Expand on that. Yeah. Right? So even if you started a, a new job and you have uh, auto enrollment, and let's say you, you hit the opt out button, it's very likely that over the course of about 10 years, you could catch up with the people who are automatically enrolled because maybe at, at, at the moment that you're just getting started, that's okay. And I think that that's, um, that's really a, a positive message for us to hear. And so I'm, I'm, I want to pass that along that don't despair. If, if you aren't enrolled, 
just get enrolled when you can and catch up. Yeah. So talk to me about leakage. Talk to me about your conversation with John about leakage. That was a really interesting thing is that when he mentioned that in the United States, it could be as high as 50 cents on the dollar is withdrawn in retirement savings before people get to retirement. And yeah, yeah, that's crazy. It really is. Now, a lot of those are in the form of 401k loans, which means they will, the idea is that they'll be paid back. But it's a kind of a scary thing to think that people might be going into retirement with something like half of what they could have because they've already withdrawn it. So, so there was sort of a, you know, a, a flare there, you know, a, a red flashing light that said, danger, Will Robinson, this isn't the best way to do it. Uh, right. Once the money is in the retirement fund, leave it in the retirement fund. It's interesting because when you think about that, as again, I'll go back to Richard Thaler, he talked about, he's, he's talked about this idea that we put money in specific mental accounting groups, right? That right. money in and of itself, as an, uh, if you are a classical economist, money is fungible. Doesn't matter if, mm-hmm. if you have $800 set aside for rent and $500 sent away for entertainment, you know, that, that money can be switched over either way. It doesn't matter. But what we tend to do as humans is we go, no, I have, a, I have certain money that's set aside for rent and utilities and education and food, et cetera. And I have these different mental accounts. And then I have these other accounts that are maybe more playful in different pieces. And, and if I was to go in and say, oh, I'm, you know, whatever, we had a car repair that I didn't and the repair account didn't have enough in, you know what? It's hard for me to then just go and say, well, I'll just take it from whatever other account to pay for this because mentally it's a different account. And you hear stories of the people who like going, I can't take out of my entertainment account. And you're going, what the hell? That's your <laughs> entertainment account. Of course you can. No, that's entertainment. Like, this is that, you know. But and that where all this was going is that this idea that people are taking 50 cents out of every dollar pre seems counter to that because yeah. this is not only set aside mentally, it's set aside physically in a separate account. Mm-hmm. And so that takes a lot of effort and uh, to, to get out of that. So, yeah. Yeah. And regrettably uh, there's a lot of people who are doing that. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's really the challenge. Um, the last thing that I wanted to, to cover was this idea of just let's make it easy on ourselves too. That if we, if we didn't go through auto enrollment, when, when should we get started? And I think that we talked about this with John in our first conversation with about uh, fresh starts and yeah. uh, the, the work that he did with Katie Milkman. And it's, yeah. just, it's just so cool that, uh, you know, <laughs> that they just tested all these fresh start ideas and they all have a positive effect. Yeah. Birthdays, first day, new year, you know, beginning of the quarter, uh, first day of spring, even that's coming up. There you go, folks. You know, know. so there you go. What, what is also interesting, Tim, and and thinking about this is we know uh, for myself, I'm auto enrolled. I have that, but that auto enrollment is often at a set kind of default mode and you can, you can contribute more than that. Right. Yeah, And so these fresh starts are also really good times to consider, am I optimizing my long-term savings investment in this manner 
and use those fresh starts in order to help to say, yeah, let's uh, let's make sure I'm maximizing this to optimize my my long term and uh, immediate returns and satisfaction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Do you think we can wrap it up? Uh, what else? Yeah, I think I, we can. I yeah, think we can. Yeah, okay. I think that's it. All right, okay. What, what else do you want to remind uh, Groovers of? Well, in case they weren't listening to the introduction, we should remind them we are releasing a five-part podcast series on the history of behavioral, uh, behavioral economics, and it's called They Thought We Were Ridiculous. And that drops on February 26th of this year, 2024. Uh, and we want everyone to check it out. We want them to share it with their friends and Amazon delivery people and coworkers and there you go. ETA yeah. and Cub Scouts and everybody. <laughs> Cub Scouts. There you go. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Then, you know. All right. Yes. And we hope that if your situation allows for it, that you take some of the lessons from today and that you're doing all that you can to invest in your defined contribution plan, or as we like to call them mostly in the United States, 401ks. If you're not, check. Make sure you're you're checking that out. And hey, yeah. you know, Monday's a fresh start. So there you go. Check it out. Uh, it's a Monday that this is released. Check it out. There you go. Good, good point. Yes. Uh, and then we hope that by enrolling or at least giving some thought to it, maybe even upping your contribution rate, this will help you this week as you go out and find your groove. Mm-hmm.